Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Giles Snyder. Today we'll hear several stories about people who are working to help address problems within their own communities. We'll visit a high school where students are learning to become recovery coaches to help their fellow classmates who struggle with addiction. I would venture to guess that every single student in this entire school has been affected by addiction in some way. And we'll hear the story of a group of citizens in West Virginia whose case against a major chemical company inspired the film Dark Waters. This is one of those rare circumstances where the community came together, actually got the human studies done, and actually was able to confirm you know, that this chemical was causing harm. And we'll visit Weirton, West Virginia, where volunteers from the Serbian immigrant community are trying to keep their culture and traditions alive despite population loss. We have one man that comes down here, buys five chickens every week, but he only eats one. He'll take it and he'll give one to his aunt. He'll give one to somebody else. You'll find these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Giles Snyder, guest hosting this week's episode. Jessica Lilly will be back next week. Today we're listening back to an encore episode, which originally aired in February. If you recognize my voice, it may be because I used to host Inside Appalachia. We'll have more on that later in the show. These days, I'm better known as a newscaster for NPR. My job is more about national and international news and stories that strike closer to home. From time to time, however, stories that I likely would have covered if I had remained a local journalist bubble up to the national level. The opioid epidemic is one of them. Stories about the epidemic that make national news usually seem to be about how it's ravaging Appalachia. But while the statistics can be depressing and used to stereotype the region, today we're going to hear a more hopeful story about one high school that's working to interrupt the cycle of addiction by training kids as recovery coaches. Carol Lofton visited the school in the central West Virginia town of Clay and brought back this report. Clay is the kind of town in which downtown Main Street is only about a half mile long. And in between shuttered storefronts, two of the remaining most prominent stores are Family Dollar and the Dollar Tree. Like the rest of southern West Virginia, the opioid epidemic has hit Clay hard. I would venture to guess that every single student in this entire school has been affected by addiction in some way. That's Leslie Osborne, the school counselor. But Clay County, like much of southern West Virginia, lacks resources for mental health services. Despite a desperate need, there are no licensed therapists in the county. And efforts to recruit one have been unsuccessful. So the school decided to create its own mental health resources in the form of students. On the last Friday before Christmas break, the entire junior class graduated from a week-long Life and Recovery Coach Academy. At the academy, which replaced academic classes for the week, students learned hard skills like how to administer the opioid overdose reversal medication naloxone, as well as softer ones like how to ask open-ended questions and listen actively. At the end, they received three college credits and a nationally recognized certification. Senator John Unger founded the West Virginia Recovery Coach Academy in 2016 and has been leading trainings all over the state since then. And one thing we want to do is look at changing a culture, not just changing 
just individual lives, but changing a culture that transforms lives. He said the goal is to build resiliency within the students themselves, give the kids concrete job skills they can use immediately upon graduation if they choose, and provide the community with more engaged citizens. So we're training them to be advocates and leaders in that area. After graduation, two boys hung back to talk with me. Both had seen people in their lives struggle with addiction. You know, seeing people in Clay with such bad addictions and stuff, I figured you know, if I could do anything, I'd probably be involved and learn how to help. That was junior Lucas Lynch. For his friend, Bryson McLaughlin, the experience was even more personal. For me, it was more of my mom because she's been through it once before, so she told me it was a good experience to have, so I did. So do you, when you're like, you know, when you're interacting with your mom or other people that you know struggle with addiction, how does that, how does this training sort of change the way that you interact with them? I just feel like I can talk to them easier knowing that there's more people out there that have the same problems. And I feel like more people will help if more people knew about it. The idea is that by training the junior class next year, the school will have a cohort of seniors ready to mentor incoming freshmen in resiliency. So we're training them to be advocates and leaders in that area. With 111 juniors graduating from the Recovery Coach certification, it's the biggest academy Unger has ever run for high school students. But it may not be the last. It's like a vaccination for our students. That state associate superintendent, Kathy D'Antoni. For them to have a way to fight off an epidemic, and this is basically what it is. And so whatever skill sets, just like a flu shot medicine, we can give kids and, and arm them so that, that we can protect them as well as we can. The West Virginia Department of Education came to Clay to observe during the week-long academy. And D'Antoni says plans are underway to expand the program to other high schools around the state. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Kara Lofton. Kara originally reported that story in January. When it posted online, people from across the country saw it. John Unger says he heard from people who are interested in doing something similar in their communities. And get this, as schools plan to reopen this fall, the Life Coach Academy is working to teach students resiliency skills to be able to help other students prepare for the transition back into school life. The program is exploring how students can help each other with the emotional toll that the pandemic has brought to so many students. The program has also expanded to doing life coaching courses for adults in West Virginia, including nurses and other frontline workers. Since the pandemic, these trainings have been done virtually over the Internet. Like the folks in Clay County we just heard about, there are many people who are working on the ground to help people find recovery. Community-based efforts like these could make a real impact in the fight against the opioid epidemic and could benefit from additional funding. One question, though, is whether money from court settlements against drug manufacturers and distributors will trickle down to community efforts. Earlier this year, when we first aired this episode, I spoke with Eric Eyre, formerly a reporter with the Charleston Gazette-Mail. He won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for his work into the opioid epidemic. Eric, thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having me on, Giles. Uh, so what is it, more than 2,000 local governments are involved in the national litigation? Yeah, there's, there's 2,000 uh, local governments and tribal governments that are involved. That includes states, cities, counties. Um, the latest we'd heard that there was probably about uh, $50 billion they were talking for a settlement. That's kind of the number we've been hearing. Um, that's up for uh, 
obviously up for discussion. That also, there's another 10 to 12 billion with Purdue Pharma that's up for discussion. Mm-hmm. So where are we with the, uh, with, with the national litigation right now? It's, um, it's dragged out. I've, uh, we were in the courtroom. One of the cases, the Cavill-Huntington uh, case, was argued a, a week ago. It had been transferred from the, the Cleveland courtroom where the, most of the 2,000 cases are currently housed. And, you know, we heard the arguments, um, uh, you know, when are we going to get to trial? And I turned to somebody and said, man, this seems like Groundhog Day because I had been hearing this since 2016. I mean, these things have been dragging on and dragging on and dragging on. Paul Farrell, the plaintiff for the Cabell case, said that he was ready to go right then and there, or at least within 30 days. The uh, drug companies said they wanted to wait at least uh, 18 months. So the judge said, well, we're not going to wait 18 months, but they didn't set an exact trial date. But that's probably, there's one in New York that's going to, they're talking about one in state court in New York that could go off um, in the next couple months. But the next big one would probably be uh, the Cabell and and Huntington uh, opioid case. Is that the case that's uh, consolidated in Cleveland? It was consolidated in Cleveland. Um, but they were successfully able to transfer it back to federal court here with Judge Faber in Charleston, which will make for everybody seems to think a much speedier trial. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a lot of money at stake there that uh, could benefit local efforts to recover from the crisis. Uh, what's your sense about whether they will these local efforts will ultimately benefit, or is that still an open question? Yeah, well, w- one thing they've worked out is they've created this program called the Negotiation Class, and that's every city, county, uh, town in the United States is part of this Negotiation Class, and they would all band together, and, and if there was a settlement, 75% of all these entities approved it, they would get the money. But here's the deal. There's no stipulation that it would go to recovery. Um, they're arguing a public, there's, there's a public nuisance uh, issue. Um, so conceivably, all these uh, cities and towns and counties could take the money and use it for the settlement money and use it for even, even those that weren't profoundly impacted by the opioid epidemic, because it's everybody. Um, they could use it for whatever they want. If they needed a new trash truck, if they needed to pave streets, if they needed to hire law enforcement officers, they could use the money any way they wanted. So the recovery community is really upset about that, that, um, you know, the money's not going to go to where it's the, 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 the the problem that was caused. It wouldn't go to the, to fix the problems that were caused. Yeah. But going back to the, uh, to the tobacco settlement of the 1990s and checking out how that money was ultimately spent. Uh, tell us anything about what could happen here. I guess what I'm asking is, is there, um, is, are there any lessons to be learned here? Yeah, well, the tobacco money was significantly more. It was $200 billion, uh, so about four times as much as what they're talking here. But the same thing happened there, that a lot of that tobacco money which was supposed to go to uh, prevention efforts and and such, uh, wound up being spent by the cities for other things which they considered more pressing that really had nothing to do with uh, the, the, the ill health effects of, of smoking. Mm-hmm. You wrote a few months back about uh, one of the more heartbreaking aspects to all this, and that's the babies who are born dependent on opioids. 
and how they seem to be left behind in the national litigation. Could you talk a little bit about where that issue is? Yeah, they're they're stuck. They're stuck with the cities and counties, and I think that the cities and counties want them stuck there because. You know, these are the the most innocent, obviously the innocent victims of the opioid crisis. Their lawyers are desperately trying to get the cases, their cases severed, and and heard separately from the cities and counties. It just seems like they're just completely different issues. On the one side, you know, they're arguing that this is a public nuisance. Um, the the cities and counties. On the other, the you know, the babies, you know, we need to find out, you know, they want programs in place of what the long-term health effects are going to be of opioid, uh, when they're born opioid dependent. They want to, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of concern. There's going to be developmental delays, that type of thing. It's going to impact their learning in schools. So they really want, they really want that carved out. But so far, the judge in Cleveland has rejected all efforts, and there have been multiple efforts to carve out the baby cases from the, the other litigation. But so far, he's rejected all those efforts. Yeah, I'm going to switch gears on you now and mention that we ran into each other uh, in Shepherdstown while you were speaking about your reporting. What was that, a year or two ago? Yeah, I think so. It was a good time. Yeah. In any case, you were writing a book on the opioid crisis back then, and now I understand it's going to be out soon. Yeah, it's coming out uh, March 31st. It's called Death in Mudlick, a coal country fight against the drug companies that delivered the opioid epidemic. It's a, it's basically about how a, a tenacious lawyer and an ex-con, actually, who had a drug peddling past, and myself, um, all contributed, kind of sort of banded together, one community, to uncover this massive pill dumping in Appalachia, how, how these drug companies, these drug distributors flooded the, the uh, Appalachia and, and, frankly, for the rest of the nation with an excessive number of, of opioids, which, of course, sparked uh, the greatest uh, health crisis in American history. How much more reporting did you have to do for, uh, for your book? I, I did a lot, um, a lot of extra reporting on impacts of the lobbying that was going on uh, behind the scenes, um, and uh, we 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 actually, when my articles came out, I mean, we mostly focused on uh, Kermit, West Virginia. You remember the the town that had nine million, nearly nine million opioids in a town of like three hundred people, but. We found that 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 wasn't some just uh, you know outlier. That there were many many communities in in Appalachia, in West Virginia, and other towns across the country that got a similar uh, deluge of of opioids. Eric Ayer was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Investigative Reporting in 2017 for stories on the opioid crisis. Earlier this year, he published his new book called Death in Mud Lick, a cold country fight against the drug companies that delivered the opioid epidemic. Eric Ayer is now a senior investigative reporter at Mountain State Spotlight and was previously a reporter with the Charleston Gazette-Mail.
Next, we'll hear about another legal battle that made national headlines in recent years, the decades-long saga over DuPont's dumping of toxic chemicals in the Ohio Valley. The story is portrayed in the film released last year, Dark Waters. It stars Mark Ruffalo as lawyer Rob Billot, who defended chemical companies until he decided to take a case against DuPont. Scientific studies eventually revealed that one of the materials used to make Teflon, called C8 or PFOA, can cause cancer. It's an ongoing story that did not stop after the film's release. Brittany Patterson reports the chemicals are showing up in more drinking water systems around the region. Dark Waters depicts the real-life story of the 20-year battle waged by attorney Rob Bellot against DuPont. We meet Bellot as a young corporate defense lawyer living in Cincinnati. His grandmother in Parkersburg, West Virginia, gives his phone number to a local farmer, Earl Tennant. Tennant lives next to a landfill where DuPont has been dumping a chemical called C8. How many did you lose? 190. 190 cows. You tell me nothing's wrong here. As we learn, what starts as a small favor to his grandmother becomes something much bigger. DuPont is knowingly poisoning 70,000 local residents for the last 40 years. In the real-life story, documents released by DuPont during litigation revealed the company knew for decades C8, also known as PFOA, was dangerous but said nothing. Not to their workers, the surrounding community, or federal regulators. Balat's fight introduced America to PFOA and its related class of chemicals called PFAS. They've been used in everything from pizza boxes to flame-retardant foam sprays and in nonstick and stain-resistant products like Teflon. Balat won a $670 million settlement with DuPont, but arguably the most important outcome was a 70,000-person health study into the effects of PFOA exposure. That allowed an independent panel to link exposure to six diseases, including thyroid disease and testicular and kidney cancer. This is one of those rare circumstances where the community came together actually got the human studies done and actually was able to confirm, you know, that this chemical was causing harm. That's the real Rob Balot, speaking at a recent event hosted by The Washington Post. And yet here still we are. You know, I, I sent a letter to EPA, I think it was 18 years ago, asking them to set federal standards and, and drinking water guidelines for this one chemical. We still can't get that. The EPA has acknowledged that its non-binding health advisory levels on PFAS exposure are insufficient. Congress is now getting involved. Dozens of bills related to PFAS are sneaking their way through both the House and Senate, among debate about whether there is sufficient science to regulate the chemicals. Harvard University adjunct professor Philippe Grandjean has spent his career studying the ways pollution impacts children, including PFAS chemicals. The science is very strong, and the public health consequences are really serious. In addition to the six diseases linked by the Ohio Valley C8 study, he says other research has shown vaccines might not be as effective in children with high levels of PFAS exposure. Meanwhile, a handful of states are setting their own standards, much stronger than EPA's health advisory. And more communities are testing for these chemicals in drinking water. Ohio is monitoring water systems near known contamination sites. Kentucky regulators recently released results of 81 water system tests around the state. Half tested positive for PFAS compounds. Researchers found the highest levels of contamination in eastern Kentucky, along the Ohio River. 
to me, where we're at right now, we're soon going to find that there are a whole lot more communities with exposed people than anyone thought. Susan Penny is a researcher at the University of Cincinnati. Her work has shown the use of granulated activated carbon filters to treat water reduces the amount of PFAS detected in humans. But without a federal mandate and assistance, they are cost prohibitive for many municipalities. Those systems cost millions of dollars for a water treatment plant to install. Penny's work indicates the chemical's presence in the Ohio is likely linked to DuPont's activity upriver, including the dumping depicted in the film Dark Waters. In a statement, DuPont said the film, quote, misrepresents some things that happened years ago, and in some cases depicts wholly imagined events. Balot says he thinks the facts speak for themselves. It is now in the blood of everyone. It's in water all over the planet. I mean, these are facts. Um, and the story, you, I think people can see for themselves and they can judge for themselves exactly what really happened um, and you know, where, where the truth really is here. Balot's fight isn't over. He's filed a second class action lawsuit against eight chemical companies on behalf of everyone in the U.S. who has PFAS chemicals in their blood. He hopes this one doesn't take 20 years. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Brittany Patterson. Up next, did you know that West Virginia was pivotal in the fight to give women the right to vote back in the 1920s? After the break, we'll hear how the debate played out here in Appalachia. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Giles Snyder. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. There are plenty of ways to report on the stories that impact us daily, and while I may be confined to the studio these days, I still keep up with how Appalachia is covered. That's why it's nice to be back in my old seat for a change, guest hosting Inside Appalachia, because on this show, we have time to hear from people who are impacted and learn more than we often get in sound bites or quick news stories. And as we've been hearing, sometimes we make history here in Appalachia that affects the entire nation. If there is one story that we can rely on daily, it's the presidential election. This year, more women than ever decided to run for the Democratic nomination. And recently, Joe Biden selected a woman, Kamala Harris, to be his running mate. So this seems like a good time to remember that 100 years ago, women earned the right to vote after 70-plus years of struggle that included everything from marches and protests to beatings, hunger strikes, and force feeding. Today, much of that history is overlooked, but 2020 marks a centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. Across the nation, efforts have been made this year to remember the struggle. Earlier this winter, Eric Douglas sat down with Dr. Renata Poor and Rita Ray from the Kanawha Valley Chapter of the National Organization for Women. They discussed why it's important to remember suffrage history and some of the ways it's being commemorated this year. Dr. Poor, can you tell me about the history of the suffrage movement and women's right to vote? especially when it comes to West Virginia? The first demand for the right to vote for women came in 1848, so more than 70 years before it actually happened. And in West Virginia, when Congress passed the um, 
national amendment to the Constitution. It had to be ratified by 36 states. And uh, West Virginia became the 34th state to ratify it. The governor had to call a special session of the legislature because the legislature didn't meet every year. And uh, he put it on the agenda. The House of Delegates passed it fairly quickly, but the Senate didn't want to pass it. And there were 28 senators, and it just was deadlocked. Well, one senator had resigned the year earlier and had moved out of state, so he was not really in contention, although he did come back and try to vote against it, but that didn't happen. The other senator, Jesse Block from Wheeling, was in California at a golf tournament, and uh, when they found out that the Senate was deadlocked, they telegrammed him and asked him to please come back to West Virginia as quickly as possible. And he said he couldn't do that. Is there something else they could do? Well, there wasn't. So he gets on the road, and the Gazette uh, has a headline article, Senator Block coming back from California to cast the deciding yes vote for suffrage. And then the next day, nobody knows where Senator Block is. Senator Block last seen in New Mexico— And then the next day, it's like the third or fourth day, Senator Block coming back by airplane because that was the only way they could get him back here. Uh, So they showed up in Chicago, and a post office plane was supposed to take him from Chicago to Cincinnati where he would get on the train and make it to Charleston for the vote. Well, not sure what happened, but he never did get on that airplane. Uh, Some people said his wife wouldn't let him, whatever the story But uh, the National Republican Committee then commissioned a special train just for him, for Jesse, for $5,000 to get him in time to Cincinnati so he could take the train down here to Charleston. He arrived here at 2 a.m. on March the 10th, and, uh, you know, then the Capitol was still downtown on Lee Street. was stayed at a hotel downtown, went to the Capitol the next morning and voted, yay. And West Virginia became the 34th state to pass the 19th Amendment. Rita, can you tell me about some of the activities planned for this year? We have a play that's being planned in production. We have a film series that's going on at the Floor Lee Cohen Cinema at Taylor Books in Charleston. And there's a, we are showing a film on Monday nights, repeated every Monday night during the month of January, one title. It's called One Woman, One Vote. And uh, several of these, in addition to that, a Ken Burns documentary is lined up about the relationship between Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Um, and that's a two-part series. And... We have a film, Iron-Jawed Angels, which is a feature film, and uh, these all review the history of this struggle that took so long. Talk about that for a second. Tell me why why it's important to, to go back over this, to refresh people's memories about what happened 100 years ago. I do not remember learning about the suffrage movement when I was in public school or in college. And um, I took a lot of history classes. And it's a good lesson knowing about this struggle, how important it is for everyone uh, to take advantage of their right to vote and also to resist 
any efforts to con- to curtail that and take away and restrict the access to the vote. The United States, we pride ourselves on being the first democracy, and we forget that that first democracy didn't include women. It didn't include black people. It didn't even include people who didn't have property. It was uh, a democracy for wealthy white men. And where we are now, that those rights had to be fought for every step of the way. And we're still not really where we want to be. And I want to remind women that we still have a long way to go for rights like equal pay, for equal work, uh, for to deal with sexual harassment in the workplace. I agree with you. I don't remember ever learning those sorts of things in in history in school uh, that women were, you know, just for saying, I want the right to vote. They were axe handled down to the ground sort of thing. That uh, that was a bit shocking for me. There was a lot of brutality during that during that time. And and as Renata mentioned, when women were jailed and and tortured, you know, with force feeding and very vicious, vicious treatment. Is there anything we haven't covered that you that we want to talk about? We're partnering with state agencies, the Women's Commission, the Secretary of State's Office, uh, Culture and History. The Women's Commission is sponsoring two events at the legislature on January 24th and February 17th. So I uh, hope people will look for that and, and come out for those events. That was Dr. Renata Poor and Rita Ray speaking with Eric Douglas about the centennial celebrations of the women's suffrage movement and the right to vote. That conversation was recorded back in January this year. Portrayals about Appalachia often follow stereotypes, some that our region derives most of its culture from the Scots-Irish. In fact, our cultural roots can also be traced to Native Americans and African Americans, as well as immigrants from across the globe. For example, at the turn of the 20th century, Serbians fleeing religious persecution settled in the upper Ohio Valley. They established a Serbian Eastern Orthodox Church and picnic grounds along the Ohio River in West Virginia and Ohio. Many found work in steel mills and coal mines. The population has shrunk in recent years with the decline of coal and steel jobs, but the Serbian community remains an important presence in the river town of Steubenville, Ohio, and nearby Weirton, West Virginia. They're especially known throughout the region for one thing, roasted chicken. The men's club of the church roasts 5,000 chickens every summer in a weekly event they call a chicken blast. West Virginia State folklorist Emily Hilliard went to check it out. At 5 a.m. every Wednesday morning in the summertime, a group of a dozen or so men gather at the Serbian picnic grounds along Kings Creek outside of Weirton, West Virginia. In a long cement block building, they mill about in the dawn light, eating donuts, drinking coffee, and reading the morning paper. The men are members of the Serbian Men's Club of the Holy Resurrection Serbian Orthodox Church. They've been hosting weekly chicken blast fundraisers here since 1969. They roast 300 to 400 chickens a week and sell them to the Weirton community. My name is John Kasanovic. I'm uh, 73 years old. Lived in Weirton, West Virginia all my life. Right now, I'm, I'm the treasurer of the men's club. I've been the treasurer for the last uh, 16 years. And uh, when I come down here on Wednesdays, I tend to fire. 
John sports a ball cap, jeans, and flannel over a Pittsburgh Steelers t-shirt. He piles cardboard boxes and broken-down wood pallets in a long brick hearth. Then he lights it all on fire. Other men unload raw chickens from a cooler, threading them on long metal poles. And uh, guys get down here usually around 5.30 in the morning, cleaning the poles up, getting the chickens out and all. We cook the chickens, we wrap them, we put them in the, our boxes, uh, and they stay warm for the whole day, and they'll stay juicy and never had a complaint about them. John is nonchalant about the process, but these chicken blasts are a lot of work. Each member knows their role, and they work together like a well-oiled machine, tending the fires, adding salt and pepper to the chickens, rotating and tending to them. 350 roasting chickens supplied by a farm in Pennsylvania is an impressive sight. There are 25 chickens on a pole and three to four poles stacked over each fire, burning at about 800 degrees. Chickens on the top drip fat on the chickens below, naturally basting them. Other than that, the recipe is deceptively simple, according to John Greener. He's been volunteering at the Chicken Blast for the past five years. Oh, they taste terrific. <laughs> I think some people say it's the best chickens that they've ever had. And we only season with salt and pepper. A lot of people think there's a secret recipe. There's no secret to it at all. It's just salt and pepper. And uh, we make sure they're cooked. This unique spit design, the industrial brick oven, and walk-in coolers were built just for this purpose by members of the men's club. And they all worked at Weirton Steel Mill. In fact, skills they developed as pipe fitters, bricklayers, and machinists helped make this operation a reality. We had uh, one man, uh, George Baltich, he was uh, uh, a boss with the carpenters. So he was able to, you know, know how to make the table. And other guys were millwrights, they knew how, how to work with the motors and all that and set things up. So we had a lot, a lot of guys that were very, very uh, uh, useful to what we had to get accomplished here. In the early days, the customer base was largely steel mill workers and their families. Most guys uh, worked in the mill, you know I mean? They were looking for lunches after work or, or taking a chicken to work for their lunch. And the more the word spread around in the mill about this being available, uh, more people took the opportunity to uh, make themselves uh, available for it. And after four o'clock, we'd come down, you know, family come down, get a chicken, uh, you know, picnic style day. As steel jobs declined in Weirton, the number of chickens the club is able to sell per week has declined with it. In the early 80s, the club could sell six to seven hundred chickens a week. Now they average about 350. I started in the mill in 1966 and we had 14,000 workers in there. And when I retired in 2003, we had uh, a little over 2,000. So we had a big drop off. So that really, you know, affected uh, uh, the people coming down. And people moved away. Still, they managed to sell over 5,000 birds over the course of the summer. The weekly chicken blasts still draw a decent crowd who come to picnic on the grounds in the evening. The tradition survives not only because of the strong community among steelworkers, but also because it connects families to their Serbian heritage. Many of the men remember roasting meat in their backyards with their families growing up. I lived next door to my grandmother and grandfather, and uh, they used to do pigs for, uh, for Christmas. And uh, we didn't have electric spits. We had hand by the hand. And, and Jesus, we, we were kids, we'd go up there and turn the spit. You know, it would take hours. But we didn't care. It was cold in January, but we were by that warm fire. You just knew you were helping the 
for the day, and that, that was a lot of fun. That was uh, but over over in Serbia, yeah, that's uh, that's a big tradition over there with the wood. It's that connection that keeps John Kasanovich coming down at dawn to stand over a hot fire every week in the heat of summer. Been involved with it for 33 years, so you know, just came down one time, and like I said, and boy, this is fun. My one uncle used to come down. He wasn't even Serbian, but he loved the diner, so I'd come down with him. And, you know, it was a lot of fun to be with him like that. It's a tradition that John Greener would like to see continue. But most of the folks here are in their 60s, maybe almost in their 70s, and we'd like to see some young talent get here. We've got a few guys who uh, work here until they have to go to college. Uh, I don't know what the future is. You know, it could be in five years that uh, we don't have enough volunteers. I hope not. It's a tradition we'd like to continue. The efforts of the men's club are appreciated by the Weirton community, Serbian and otherwise. Chickens regularly sell out in about two and a half hours. There is a group of regular customers with standing weekly orders, and some come down to the picnic grounds at 7 a.m. to stake out their favorite picnic table for their evening chicken dinner. This is a way for them to get their families down here together uh, with, with their children and all that, and they can interact with their families. Uh, we have one man that comes down here and buys five chickens every week, but he only eats one. He'll take it and he'll give one to his aunt. He'll give one to a friend. He'll give one to somebody else. John Pate is that regular who buys four extra chickens each week, giving them away to family and friends. Oh, it's, it's great. It's camaraderie. You know, it's camaraderie. You come down, when I, you, the people that worked in the mill, I'm a retired uh, steel worker, you'd come down here on Wednesdays, you bring your family, you bring the kids in. I don't know if you notice on the other side, there's a volleyball, there's bocce, there's the kids were going to crick, looking at young kid, crawl dads and all of that. And it was just, uh, it was just a camaraderie. You could either bring the food down here and that, and people bring side dishes, and, and it's a mill. The chicken blasts run from the last weekend in May to the last weekend in August at the Serbian picnic grounds in Weirton, West Virginia. Money raised from the blasts help maintain the picnic grounds. For Inside Appalachia and the West Virginia Folklife Program, I'm Emily Hilliard in Weirton, West Virginia. That story was produced by the West Virginia Folk Life Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council in collaboration with our Inside Appalachia team. The chicken blast did go on this summer with proper social distancing measures in place, but due to restrictions, event organizers did have to cut the season a little shorter this year. The last day to order chickens was August 26, but they hope to be back in action again next summer. In the meantime, you can watch a video from last year's chicken blast. That's at WV Public. Often the stories told about our region don't show the rich diversity and culture that exists across Appalachia. There are tough realities here, though, a lot of poverty, but telling the stories about the poor is often not done in a meaningful or empathetic way. For our final segment, we're going to hear from a woman who wanted to tell her own story in her own words. Catherine Manley grew up in poverty in Logan County, West Virginia, but went on to teach in the same schools she attended. Mountain State Press recently published her memoir. It's called Don't Tell Them You're Cold, and it's about the challenges she faced as a young girl and how she overcame them. Here she is reading a short chapter from the book. 
You want to go ahead and read a segment for me, please? Sure. (laughs) Now, give us a little setup. Explain what what this is. All right. Um, This is the chapter called Decorating, and uh, my mother, in addition to the other challenges I faced, my mother just ran away um, several months ago, or I beg your pardon, a few, a few weeks, uh, and I have, I'm just inundated with everything happening and trying to take care of my daddy and go to school, put up with homework and uh, my brother and my sister. So I'm just there um, in the bed and I'm, I'm ended up, I'm talking to God. Dear God, I miss mommy. I wonder where she went. These past few weeks have been hard since she left. Daddy talked to a few of her friends, but they don't know anything. I've been thinking about Mommy and Daddy. He's 56 and doesn't feel well most days. Mommy was 37, full of fun, and got around quicker than a jack-in-the-box. Was he too old for her? Is she dancing in that pink outfit now that she loves so much? Is that what she needed to do? Daddy won't talk about her. I'm trying hard to be brave, but there's so much work to do and I'm missing out. I don't have much free time. I'd like to walk the tracks with Debbie or watch the boys play baseball in the field behind her house. Oh, well, maybe I'd feel a little better if we had some money to decorate. I can't stand these upside-down gazebos and southern bells anymore. Why did Mommy hang this wallpaper upside down like she did the acrobats in the other room? Margaret and I want a pink bedspread and curtains now that we share the same bedroom. I hate those 50-cent plastic curtains. The flowers disappear more each time we wash them. And we have too many Jesus calendars. We have Jesus walking on the water, Jesus knocking at the door, Jesus holding the baby lamb, and Jesus praying in the garden. I'll keep Jesus on the cross because that one says it all. And I'll keep that angel watching those little children walk across the bridge. And I'll keep Mother Mary with that heart necklace. Mother Mary... Mother to Jesus and us all. I'll keep that one calendar with the almanac. We use that as a guide for any everything. God, even wallpapering. Maybe my wallpaper cracked in here because Mommy papered in the wrong phase of the moon. Maybe that's why the kraut rotted in the jars. It was canned in the wrong sign. I'd also like to have covers for the couch and the chair and a new linoleum rug. A table lamp would be nice so we can see each other at night. We don't even have one lamp, God. Maybe with the living room looking halfway decent, I can invite a friend over. I can't decorate any more tonight, God. I'm just too sleepy. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. That's Catherine Manley reading from her new memoir, Don't Tell Them You're Cold. The title refers to a time when she was begging on the streets of Logan with her father. Manley says her dad was afraid the authorities would take her away if she told anyone she was cold. Manley sat down with Eric Douglas to discuss why she decided to put her experience into words. Give us the the overall idea behind the book. The book uh, ranges in age from my being six years old to approximately 19. I do go a little bit later on and tell you a few things happen after that, but it uh, it deals with my family's struggle with abject poverty there in Logan County, a little bit in Kanawha County, and uh, how... I uh, was able to make it out. Why did you decide to write a memoir? I mean, th- this is yeah. this has got to be difficult to mm-hmm. even dredge up and write about. 
Well, I hadn't even thought about it. I, I just thought, well, this is what some folks go through, and um, either some, some of us make it out and some of us don't. But as I got older, and I would share some of these stories uh, with others, and they would say, you need to write that down. Then uh, Dr. Fran Simone mm-hmm. from uh, the West Virginia Writing Project, I had her in class around 95 or 96 and she uh, read my first three pieces, and she said, oh, you have to write these down. What's your family's reaction to it? I, my, I have a brother in Pennsylvania, and I sent him a copy, and he was glad that I told the story because it helped him see. He was much younger mm-hmm. than I was. And um, my husband was is really supportive of my three children. They really, <clears throat> they said, excuse me, they said that they're, I'm giving them a look into my life that they probably never would have known about, but now it's on the printed page for them to see. It's interesting, the stories you tell, even from six, seven, your your earliest memories Mm -hmm. of where you started the book, I never got the feeling that you were, you you weren't angry, you weren't embarrassed, Mm -hmm. it was just, (laughs) and and actually you almost described it as a a decent childhood, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. the early years. Mm -hmm. It it was just a way of life, Eric, and also it was the time in which I was raised in the late 50s and 60s. We were very resourceful. I think we we probably used all the resources given to us, in whether it was uh, in a mountain or uh, beside the river or in a dump. You just did that. What did you learn when you wrote the book? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I cried a lot. I really did. Some of the chapters I cried, and I'd have to push the keyboard back. And some of the chapters I laughed about, especially relatives and survivors, um, I learned that I was probably stronger than what I thought I was. Oh, I thought one of the interesting devices you used in the book was the the letters, uh, mm-hmm. the, the letters to yourself, letters mm-hmm. to your mother, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Where, where did that idea come from? I had some really good people that were that were helping me, working with me, and someone they wanted something else. They wanted to know what I thought about this happening, what I thought about that happening. And at that time, I wasn't sure how to work that in the book. So I sat down and I thought, well, I remember those evenings when things were difficult. I would lay in bed at night and I would just, I would talk to God. I would just look, you know, part the curtain, look up there and I would say, God, I know you're up there somewhere. And I would just start talking and talking. So I thought, what about a letter? What do you hope people come out of after reading this book? Oh, goodness. I hope that... um, they are strengthened in hope in their hope that they can make it out, that it will inspire them. And if there's anyone going through a challenging situation right now, just realize that nothing is permanent. I mean, whatever you're going through today, you can wake up in the morning and it's a new day and there's a way that you can make it out. Never give up hope. I thought it was interesting, too, when you were, you're, you were graduating high school, you were accepted into college. And then for financial issues and family issues, you, yeah. you chose not to go. And it was 10 years before you returned to, yeah. to, to, to Marshall, where you had been mm-hmm. accepted before. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I, no, I thought that was impressive that, that you held mm-hmm. on to that dream. You, mm-hmm. you worked and, and raised, started raising your family, but you still went back to school later when you got that opportunity. Yes, I always wanted to be a teacher. I, I enjoyed going to Logan High School and being with my classmates, and I was always helping someone work on their next uh, semester, their schedule, or I was showing them how to do this or how to do that. And, and I enjoyed sometimes I would go into the morning, and I always loved reading, as someone would say, I didn't understand that story. Can you explain it to me? Can you tell me? And I, I would do that, and I thought, hey, you know, maybe I do have that little teaching bug in me. I can do that. But, yeah, I held on to that dream. Anything else we haven't talked about that you'd like to add? 
by me writing the book, I think that I have also learned that the thought that uh, the poor people will never, ever matter. I think that is so wrong. I've actually heard someone say to me one time, oh, they don't matter, but oh, yes, they do. If we don't do something to correct this, uh, reverse the cycle of poverty, then this is just going to be another chapter written in history. And so that's my platform as I travel around the state and other places to get children to realize they are important, but they must dream. They must set a goal for themselves. And as adults, we must help them. Manley is retired from teaching now, but regularly speaks to groups of students about what it takes to break the cycle of poverty. I do know, being a teacher for years and years, and I talk to my students, I always did an Appalachian unit with them, and one of them was uh, Appalachian Resiliency. We do bounce back. I mean, we bounce back from floods, from unemployment, from uh, mining catastrophes, and uh, that's just, I think that's just in our spirit here in West Virginia, and I'm thankful that I had part of that Appalachian Resiliency, or probably I would not have made it out. Let's bring it to modern day. You've you you taught for thirty five years in the same school system that you you grew up in. Kids today, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what what lesson do you could your students learn from your book? I mean, do they even know? uh, Oh. Yes. Did they know your story when you were teaching? Oh, yes. Uh, I find that one of the ways that I tried to help motivate them was to tell them about my life story. I was like, someone told me one time, said, Kathy, you are a natural born teacher, counselor. And I thought by weaving in some of my life stories, when it was appropriate, whatever story we was on, it would help them. And they would just like, oh, my gosh. So uh, that's that's still my uh, uh, my platform today is to share with them, this is the way it was, but look at me now. Not that I'm bragging, but you can make it out. But you must stay in school. You must be good communicators. You must learn the skills. First of all, I tell them when I travel around, first of all, you have to have a goal. You must have a goal out there, but then you must learn the skills. You must have the knowledge and know how to reach that goal. You actually alluded to something, and this is not directly about your book, but I'm actually thinking about a a kind of a side project we're working on. Um, You mentioned the the concept of poverty brain. You've written Mm -hmm. an essay about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes, you know, we we talk sometimes, or some people think that if you're if you're in poverty, you're you're predisposed to remain in Mm -hmm. poverty. Mm -hmm. Some people will will give you the spin on the other side of but your resilience and and in that that breeds grit, and and you're going to rise above it. You know, and mm-hmm. and, and I don't know that either one of them is true. I think mm-hmm. I think both there are examples of both mm-hmm. of them, but there's not necessarily mm-hmm. right. Um, how do you feel about that concept? How do you feel? You know. Uh, oh yes, I feel strongly about that concept, and this is what I believe. Um, At the time, I was going through all of this and not having things, not having the clothes I wanted and running out of food the the last of the month. Um, As I got older, I looked around and I see people thinking the same thing. That generational poverty will always be with us, but you've got to do something to break it. And I say at the very last sentence in Poverty Brain, I said, we drink fatalism here 
in southern West Virginia, but I have learned to spit it out. That's what we need to do. We must teach our children how to spit it out. What they're looking at is like, oh, it's always been like this. I'll never break the cycle. We don't have this. We have to move. But yes, you can break the cycle. And it starts with teachers building relationships, neighbors, every adult in the life of a child, we need to build relationships. You first of all, you must get to know them, and uh, once you pull them on board, they they must realize that you uh, they must trust you, and then for you to be able to invade their minds, to permeate their spirit with. You need to come to school. You need an education. You can get out of this. But you have to have a dream. You must see that. And I, I tell my students when I, when I go around and speak, picture yourself walking across that stage to get that diploma. Picture yourself going to college or a trade school. Picture yourself being married. Picture yourself having the home that you want. You can do it, but you have to have a mental vision. And I think sometimes our children, they don't have dreams. They're not taught to dream. And I do mention in the book, my dad would always say, he would always say, get an education, make something of yourself. And I would like to say that to all students. And I do that when I, uh, I'll i be speaking to, I'm speaking to 11th graders around Southern West Virginia. And I'm especially talking to the female. She is the one that can break generational poverty. She does not have to settle for the norm, what's been happening in their lives, uh, in their families. So we must, I think we must, we're all responsible. It does take a village to raise a child. We must do something to reach out and help them. And we need to stop settling for what we have been getting. I had a principal one time that said, if you um, uh, keep on doing what you've always done, you're going to keep on getting what you've always gotten. I think that's what I see happening. Again, that was writer Catherine Manley speaking with Eric Douglas. Her memoir is called Don't Tell Them You're Cold. Their conversation is part of a series of occasional interviews that Eric conducts with writers from or who write about Appalachia. You can find more of these interviews on our website at wvpublic.org. Search for Appalachian Author Interviews. I'm going to say next is going to sound trite, but it's true. A common thread that seems to define being from Appalachia revolves around one big question, whether to seek better opportunities elsewhere or to stick around, perhaps to help make the region a better place than when we found it. In fact, Inside Appalachia addressed that question a few years ago with its Struggle to Stay series. If you're interested, you can still find the series at wvpublic.org. As for me, I had it both ways. I left this show while it was still trying to find its feet. I had an opportunity to become an NPR newscaster, and I took it. But I never really left the region. I simply moved from Charleston, West Virginia, to the state's eastern panhandle. These days, I'm doing most of my work remotely from my basement, but before the pandemic, I was commuting many miles into Washington, D.C. It's been worth it to keep myself rooted here in West Virginia. Besides, I wanted my kids to be like me. I didn't want to move nearer to the city because I wanted my kids to know where they came from, where home is, and that no matter where they go, there's a place in this world that will always welcome them, like the producers of this show have welcomed me. Here's the truly trite part. They say you can't go home again, and that what you remember has likely changed with the passage of time. And although Inside Appalachia has not been immune, the people behind the show were patient enough to guide me through the process, to answer my questions, and generally put up with me. 
You might not be able to go home again, but you can visit. And this visit back inside Appalachia has been fun. Maybe I'll see you around here again sometime soon. Till next time, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from Appalachia Health News, a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Marshall Health and Charleston Area Medical Center. Our theme music is by Matt Jackfurt. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps and Spencer Elliott. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Andrea Billups is our executive producer. Glennis Board edited our show this week. Xander Alloy helped produce. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. I'm Giles Snyder. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wbpublic.org. Visit wbpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. <laughs>